Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Matt Sapinski, and he'll be answering your most important questions about the brown trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column on our website. Just fill in your name and email address, and uh, we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded. will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Matt Sapinski about the brown trout Atlantic salmon nexus. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience and coaching. A vacation with Baja Fly Fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Before we introduce Matt, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So we have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered for the drawing yet, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Matt's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Matt's uh, latest book, The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, courtesy of Skyhorse Publishing. And um, to learn more about what Skyhorse has to offer, go out to uh, skyhorse.com uh, and they will uh, you can find all the uh, publications they have skyhorsepublishing.com I correct myself there um, and uh, look up uh, all the, fish, the, the books on fishing and fly fishing that they have out there so um, check them out and uh, also if you need to get uh, Matt's book you can find it on Amazon so um, to win that book um, Matt's book at the end of the show will be asking a question that's something about something that Matt and I talk about during the show. And um, you must be the first person to answer that question online using that text box that we have uh, on the home page. Just put your answer in there and your name and your location and submit that, and uh, you'll be in the running. If you're the first one to answer correctly, you'll win Matt's book. So uh, pay attention, take notes, and uh, hope you win. Our guest tonight is Matt Sapinski. Matt is a fly fishing guide, outfitter, instructor, and lodge owner, and operator, freelance writer, photographer, book author, and culinary trained chef from Michigan. He has been fly fishing since the age of seven for 
46 years and has been brought up in Niagara Frontier of upstate New York, spending time as a boy in Poland. In 1995, he opened his uh, Gray, Drake, and Trout and Eagle Lodges, which he and his wife, Lori, have been operating for 18 years. He guides clients for trout, steelhead, and salmon 280 days a year on Michigan's Great Lakes rivers like the Muskegon, Bar Maquette, uh, Big Manistee, and St. Joseph. He has fished from Russia to Europe, the U.K., Iceland, and extensively throughout all of North America. Matt's book authorships have been bestsellers and have spanned 16 years. They include River Journal, Pear Marquette, uh, Steelhead Dreams, and Steelhead Dreams 10th Anniversary Edition, Orvis Guide to Great Lakes Salmon and Steelhead. Uh, and he also co-authored uh, Orvis's ultimate book of fly fishing, as well as The Art and Science of Fly Fishing. His books also include Steelhead Dreams, Selectivity, and his most recent book, The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus. Hey, Matt, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. It's good to be back. Uh, always enjoy your programs. Yeah, well, great, great. Well, I'm always happy to have you share your your uh, extensive knowledge. And uh, after uh, I finished uh, the Brown Trout Atlantic Nexus late this afternoon. <laughs> oh, that's good. It was a yeah, read, huh? What? It was a quick read, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 188,000 words. It was uh, it was a lot. There. I was getting paid by the word, I think. Oh well, that's good. That's good. I hope it was a lot per word, like a dollar a word or something. You know, that'd be great. Uh, I just just, uh, <laughs> just joking there. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I'm glad you glad you uh, liked it, enjoyed it, and uh, yeah. I'm glad you got a little knowledge out of it. That's great. Yeah. Well, let's let's see if we can share some of that knowledge tonight, and then. Um, People can buy your book and fill in the blanks uh, tomorrow. So, um, so let's dig right in. So, you know, first, what inspired you to put this book together? Because, uh, like you said, it was a, a big job, no doubt. Uh, yeah. So, really, it's got, this is sort of like a lifetime, um, lifetime autobiography because uh, biography because um, I started at the age of seven fly fishing. Uh, my first trout caught was a brown trout. Uh, in the upstate New York area. Um, I then, at the age of eight, my dad moved us back to Poland, and I lived on a farm off the Baltic Sea that had a river that ran through it that had Atlantic salmon, uh, sea-run brown trout, and um, native strongi potukhody, which are brown trout in Polish. So I've been surrounded by these fish all my lifetime, and, and it's just like a karma. And it's just like, it's like a, a mystical thing. As much as I like steelhead and as much as I like every other fish, I love brook trout, rainbow trout, uh, there was something magical about brown trout. I think the first experience with the fish you catch, usually it's like a you break it, you buy it type experience that uh, it forever haunts me. And uh, I'm passionate about brown trout and Atlantic salmon to the point of not even passion, I think it's more obsession. And... Um, these fish have always been there. They've been there for 35 million years. They've been through everything, and I call them civilization's founding fish. Um, but the connection was even greater the more I started fishing for Atlantic salmon. Um, and the first chapter starts in that treehouse in Poland on the Vyepsha River where I was a little boy, and we sat in the treehouse and we watched the Atlantic salmon and the resident brown trout and the sea-run brown trout all intermingle. And uh, there was always a connection. The nexus is a connection. And they are the same fish. People don't realize that Salmo truda, Salmo salar, Salmo morpha, Salmo, all the, the sea runs, they're all the same thing. 
So I kept probing and probing and probing, and then a brilliant man by the name of Dr. Bjorn Janssen from Oslo University in Norway wrote an epic book called The Atlantic Salmon Brown Trout Ecology Through Habitat as a Template. It's a huge Springer University Press book. Bjorn was so kind to write the foreword for my book. And then there was Dr. Bob Bachman, who did his treehouse studies on Spruce Creek in Pennsylvania at Penn State uh, that built a treehouse. So my whole first chapter starts out as treehouse, but I was forever haunted by these fish because from Poland I came back to upstate New York, and then the first place in the Western Hemisphere to be brought, the brown trout to be brought from Germany was the Caledonia fish hatchery on Spring Creek near Rochester, and I used to fish that as a little kid quite a bit. And um, then, so that was like my backyard in Owatka Creek and Wiscoy and Cataratus Creek. And then I moved to Michigan, and then I am five minutes down the road from one of the first places it was stocked in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, wherever I went, it was like these this brown trout, Salmo Nexus God was haunting me to write this book. And when I presented the book to Skyhorse, I mean, I could literally throw a stone to the creek that the first plantings of brown trout were right here in the Huron-Manistee National Forest on the Bigelow Spring Creek, Pear Marquette, the Baldwin River. Um, so it was like if destiny picked me to write this book, it all happened together. Then I hooked up with Bjorn Janssen, and he did a lot of work with me on the Atlantic Salmon chapter and selectivity. Um, so it just came together. That it, yeah. It's just, you know, you dream about it. So that's, so it's very complex. I can't give you too much of what the book's all about because it's just, it'll go on forever. But that's sort of the connection. The connection is an yeah. obsession about a fish. Yeah, right? and, and, well, I mean, the stories you have and the places you fished, and, I mean, it's so extensive. Um, I was truly impressed with, how much fishing you've actually done for <laughs> brown trout. So um, that history and experience that surely uh, was reflected in the book. Um, you know, you, you do make the connections between, um, the, you know, the commonalities between the, the brown trout and the salmon. Um, look, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about the, 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 you know, the brown trout as well as the salmon and fishing for them here in the next uh, hour and a half. But, um is there a connection at all between the trout and the salmon that's important to us as fly fishers looking forward? Is, is there a, a big takeaway that we can say, hey, we can we can think about these fish as, as you put it, cousins, uh, and will that help us to catch more fish? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so one thing you'll have to realize, they're the most elusive fish on the planet. They have survived. Of 35 million years, 25 million years of evolution, and um, they are extremely moody. From a angling perspective, you have to have the right fly, the right time, the right conditions uh, to catch a brown trout. The same with an Atlantic salmon. They want something they can't have. They want a a fly that you probably didn't think of throwing to them, or they'll take the dumbest fly in your box. Um, they are forever changing their personalities. They are going from one phase in my selectivity book that I talked about, the aggressive phase, the active phase, and the dormant phase. They go, go through these selective phases that are just just pull your hair out trying to catch them. And then at times they take the dumbest fly that you, you have in your box. If you pull anything away from these two fish 
or one fish or the connection is they want something they can have. They want something that usually boggles your mind, and they, they go from such aggressive phases to such passive phases and to such introspective phases all in one day, which is amazing. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the brown trout first, uh, the love of your life, so to speak, other than your wife, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think she loves them, too, from what I gather. Um, sure. Yeah, so, so where did they originate? I mean, the, the, the rainbow trout and the, the brown trout have been distributed throughout the world at this point. Uh, but where where did they actually start out? So brown trout evolved 35 million years ago in the Eocene epoch, and the Eocene epoch was a, a time of incredible change. It was the dawn of the dawn of the world, the Eocene, the dawn, um, when the the world was clouded in massive greenhouse gases. Um, it was like today, we're talking about greenhouse gases, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about global warming. If you were in the Eocene epoch back then, it was massive greenhouse gases, and then the earth turned ice cold, ice age lockdown. When the ice age lockdown started to melt and the glaciers formed rivers, that's when the first Salmo started to evolve. So they evolved, if I had to draw like a rim of the Salmo, it was probably from the giant continent, from Greenland to Iceland to northern Europe to Scotland to Scandinavia, uh, all through Europe, all through Russia and the Euros, um, all the way to northern Africa from Morocco to Israel to, to that whole area was the foundation of brown trout. Wow. And, that, was, uh, that, was, that was a big encompassing area. And it wasn't too long ago that they were actually, um, I don't know that they are today. I, I, I can't remember. I think you probably mentioned it in your book. But uh, uh, it seems to me I remember you talking about them actually running up the, the Rhine River, or the Rhone River, the Danube, and, and so forth um, uh, within recent history, right? Exactly. So all of Europe had massive runs of Atlantic salmon and sea-run brown trout. What eventually, what happened was civilization, what happened, industrial revolution, uh, dams were built, hydropower was built, um, pollution eventually dropped them off. But right now in Switzerland, on a lot of the rivers, Rhine, the Rhone, and all the rivers in Europe, they're reestablishing Atlantic salmon, Salmo, and even they're starting to get Atlantic salmon run up the Thames in London. So um, wow. it's kind of interesting what's happening. So there's a major renaissance. Atlantic salmon are in a critical stage right now because they're because of what's going on with climate change and the ocean's currents warming and cooling and where the smolt and where the fry are going. Uh, they're a critical phase right now. They're down to the almost endangered and threatened phase right now. So, but on the flip side, they've evolved for 25 million years. They've survived all kinds of stuff uh, with a little help from us. Uh, I think everything's going to be fine. But brown trout are the stalwarts. They're the ones that will carry on. They'll probably be here after um, we blow ourselves up someday. I mean, they are they are here. They're the survivors. Yeah. They're civilization's founding fish, so they're very, very hardy fish. Yeah. Who's responsible and how were for the brown trout being introduced throughout the world, and, and how did that really happen? 
So what's really interesting is if everything points to the British. The British um, did everything. They invented modern civilization next to the Romans. Um, they practically uh, introduced brown trout pretty much all over the world once once they started colonizing the world. But for you know for for the rest of the world in terms of non-Western Hemisphere, i.e. North America. The British Empire, wherever there was a British Empire conquering an area, whether it was the Himalayas and in India and in Kashmir or Africa, some of the most beautiful brown trout streams are in Kenya, and wherever the Brits went, they had two passions. They had their beloved brown trout, or they took a fly that, on the fly rod, and they had, um, they had the, the, their grouse hunting and their bird hunting and, and their, their partridge hunting. So, um, the Brits really are responsible for bringing them to Australia, New Zealand, all over the planet. But what happened in the Western Hemisphere was a collaboration from the best, the new age aquaculturists, ichthyologists, um, Fred Mather and Seth Green from New York. Um, it started there, and then they brought them to the Western Hemisphere. And that's a that's a pretty big story, which I'm going to take a break from talking, but uh, we'll go from that. We'll go from that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim uh, from Cincinnati wrote in. He says, "When considering the history of the species, do we stop? Do we stop considering non-native brown trout as being, for all practical purposes, native?" <laughs> so I guess since they were introduced about everywhere but Europe, um, you know, I, I guess he's asking, when do they become native to the area that they're in, and, and have they changed? Have they? Yeah, has their so, DNA changed since they've been introduced? Absolutely. So you know, we have all these new. We have all these. So we're talking 1880, So where that all started was in the Western Hemisphere. And that's a good question, Jim. Native. We got to we got to tackle the the question of native. Um, but so when when Fred Mather went to the Berlin Exposition in the 1800s. And he met uh, Von Baer, uh, Lucius Von Baer, Baron Von Baer. They took him to the Black Forest. And in the Black Forest, um, Fred Mather got to experience a beautiful Bach Forellen. Bach means, Johann Bach means brook. Forellen means trout. And um, he got to experience how beautiful the brown trout. What was happening in, the United, in North America was massive industrial revolution. Uh, mills, tanneries, pollution, etc. Von Baer promised to send eyed up brown trout eggs to North America, and he did, and he made good on his promise, and the eggs arrived in Cold Harbor Springs in, in Long Island. Half of the shipment went to the Caledonia Fish Hatchery, the other shipment for security went to the Northville Federal Hatchery in near Northville, Michigan, near Detroit. They hatched first in Northville, and that why Michigan has the reputation of stocking uh, the first brown trout. Um, so what happened there was that, you know, for, geez, since 1883, 1884, we now have wild indigenous populations. The populations that we stock in Michigan, the wild gillcrest brown trout, came from some of these streams that were stocked in 1884. So from a native standpoint, we are probably seeing, oh, there's not definitely strains. There's a Gilcrest strain. There's the Lochleven strain that came from Scotland that predominantly went to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and other places. 
also, if you take a Pear Marquette strain right now, it's probably 90% genetically allele driven by that Von Baer strain because that's the German strain. But there's been enough mixture between the two strains of Lochleven and uh, Von Baer German Bach Forellen strains that you could say that, you know, native. Um, yeah, so we now have native. Well, native, you can't use the word native because they were native. They were there originally. But we have wild in the, uh, in the wild produced brown trout strains that are probably now very unique to our specific rivers. Right, and evolving uh, based upon the And other constantly location. evolving. So evolution, yeah. evolution is constantly evolving process. Strains are constantly evolving. We're getting mutations to strains based on predator foraging profiles, but mainly through life survival strategies. A fish in a river that has become native or has become a native to that river or has become a wild in that river system develops a life survival strategy of elements that that river contributes, that its behavioral traits contribute, that once it forms those behavioral traits and those life survival strategies, it's kind of impossible to um, replicate them. It's impossible to duplicate them once you lose them. That's why native fish or wild fish are so, so important to our whole systems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt, we need to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the brown trout. So hang with me and be Sounds right back. Sounds good. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster, Grizzly, and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They've been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick boats, I'm convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Matt Sapinski about the brown trout Atlantic salmon nexus. If you'd like to ask Matt a question, just go to our homepage, AskAboutFlyFishing.com, and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Matt, I always like to ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, so tell us a bit about your, you know, what you've got going on and, uh, in Michigan, and, uh, and what else you're up to in the fly fishing? Uh, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Roger. So uh, we've had a lot of rain, like a lot of people in the west, on the east coast. Um, I think uh, we're finally cooling. I mean, it's been cold here. It's been rainy. Uh, our mayfly hatches have been incredible. We've, honestly, God, I've never seen in 25 years our grade rate hatches so thick. It was to the point of, a week or two ago, we couldn't even fish because the water was covered with sawdust of mayfly spinners. Um, absolutely insane. So all this rain, last year we had the hottest and the driest summer on record. Now we're having the coolest summer on record, and the mayflies and our trout are absolutely loving it. And this goes the same. Uh, last weekend I was at the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum. I was doing a presentation on my Nexus book. 
when I got to get out and fish some of the rivers up there that I love, the Never Sink, the, 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 the Beaverkill, the Willow Lunac, the Delaware, and the trout are looking phenomenal. The hatches are great. I mean, water is perfect for brown trout, and so are mayflies, because that's the environment that they derived in. But things are great out here, and it's cool, and that's what they want. We have a tough time with droughts and heat waves. Uh, I'm sure you're out. You're out in Colorado, right? So you right. got a lot. You yep. have plenty of water. Um, yep. Everybody's getting plenty of water, and uh, people complain about it because it makes fishing tough sometimes. But the trout love it. The mayflies yeah. love it. The insects love it. So it's kind of cool there. I've been doing a lot of lectures on my Nexus book. I've been really thankful for all the reviews I've gotten um, that are so positive about the book. So I want to thank everybody for those reviews. But um, this next weekend, I'm going to be in Rangeley, Maine, doing an Atlantic Salmon, Landlock Atlantic Salmon Heritage uh, weekend. So anybody on the East Coast that would like to come out, we still have uh, places available to come out to the Rangeley Inn. That's the birthplace sort of of the Carrie Stevens, Grey Ghost, and the Welsh flies and all the, the heritage of Landlock Atlantic Salmon. And then I'll be out in Iceland in September and doing a bunch of Nexus tours going to all the places that I uh, that I talk about in the book. So I'm very happy to be busy and enjoying uh, the world of um, brown trout and Atlantic salmon. Uh, tell us also about uh, what you offer in Michigan uh, as far as yeah, the lodge. So, so the, yeah, exactly. So we have the Great Rake Lodge, and we're on the, the Muskegon River. We have now um, type 3 trophy brown regulations. Um we have big, huge wild king salmon up to 30 pounds. We have beautiful steelhead fishing, uh, winter, spring, summer, fall. I guide for summer steelhead on the St. Joe River in Manistee. So, we, you know, Michigan's very unique. And then we have Atlantic salmon. Uh, we still hold the world record IGFA landlock Atlantic salmon record from uh, Torch Lake. So we have all kinds of species. We have, um, we have steelhead. Winter, summer, spring, and fall, we have Pacific salmon, we have Atlantic salmon, we have brown trout, rainbow trout, brook trout. Um, it's literally a salmonoid of heaven out here, and yeah, I'm so happy to be like here. It. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's your yeah. uh, website uh, address so that we can share it's, that? It's uh, www.graydrake.com, G-R-A-Y-D-R-A-K-A, graydrake.com, just like the mayfly. Go okay, folks. They're going to hook up with uh, Matt and uh, do some fishing in Michigan. Now you know how to get all of them, and uh, and can set that up. So thanks, Matt. Thanks for uh, sharing that with us. Sure, thank um, you. And good yeah. luck on the, the launch of your book. Um, I think uh, you'll you'll do great with it. So um, awesome. One thing that came to mind this spring is um, we have this uh, kind of private lake uh, that uh, we stock every year. And we, we normally stock it with rainbows. And this past year I said, why don't we try to get some, some browns in there? Uh, we do have some browns in there now. Uh, but what we found out is, like, browns were three times the price of rainbows at the hatchery. Um, do you know anything about that? Are they harder to raise in the hatchery, or is that just a local thing? Uh, absolutely. So what you're dealing with is exactly what I talked about when I started about their moodiness. They're, they're, they just don't like they don't like people they don't like anglers they don't like vibrations they don't like sound they don't like light um, 
Browns are, they're just their own mind. If you look at their face, you look at their eyes, you just, they look like they just want to eat you. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> the reason that, I mean, they just look like they're, they're like sharks. Um, the reason why they're so hard, because they're hard to raise, uh, because they really don't like being captive. They're not very happy in a hatchery environment. They're not, rainbows are the rabbits of the hatchery world. They are, they breed, they're happy, they like sunshine. Uh, they're West Coast people. They're cool, they're laid back, they're cool, they're funky. <laughs> West Coast, um, yeah. uh, Browns are like, they got a middle finger up the whole time. and Like, like New Yorkers, uh, huh? <laughs> like New Yorkers and Michigan people and all these hardcore Yankees. Um, so they, they, uh, they are literally, you know, they're not, they're not happy people to be confined. They're not happy. Excuse me, I talk about people. I should be ashamed. Uh, they're, they're not happy <laughs> to be confined. And they take really long time to raise. And they don't like to eat. And you have to cover them up most of the time because they don't like light. And they don't like intrusion. Where a rainbow will sit there in a hatchery tank and bang on the side of the tank for the guy to come and feed it a pellet. Where the brown, the moment you open the tank, is like, get me the hell out of here. So yeah. they are harder to raise. Uh, their genetics are, everything about them is moody. So if you read my book and if you read Selectivity, I highly encourage everybody to read Selectivity, the book that I did. I think I did a podcast with you before on Selectivity. Yeah, we did. That, that's the predecessor. If you understand the concepts in Selectivity, you're going to understand the nexus a lot better. So they're much difficult fish to raise. Uh, they take a lot longer to grow. Uh, and hatcheries are all about putting them in, making them fat, and getting them out of there. And yeah. brown trout are not like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so we've now, in, in this world of ours, um, have find brown trout almost everywhere. Can you talk about the uh, adaptability of brown trout? Because, I mean, they're in some crazy places when you think about where they started out at. And, uh and they seem to be survivors. Yeah, so the bottom line about brown trout is the fact that because of their long evolution, they're the most adaptable creatures in the fish world. They can adapt to very warm temperatures. They can adapt to fast-flowing rivers, slow-flowing rivers, muddy rivers, pollution. Um, they basically are... Um, I don't know. They're, they're, they're sharks. They're carp. They're musky. They're delicate fish all in one. And that's what makes them so unique. Um, they're civilization's founding fish. They're elusive. They're aggressive. They're adaptive. They're migratory. Um, they could change in, in a heartbeat. Um, they could, you could swear you just stocked, you know, 2,000 fish in your ponds and you don't see them for a couple of years and then they show up out of nowhere. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's basically why um, they're the fish that people like. I will tell you one thing, though. In 23 years of guiding, um, if I tell somebody I could put you on a 25-inch brown trout, I've never said, I've never had anybody said no, I won't do it. Um, <laughs> everybody likes There's three things we know. We know we, everybody likes a big, thick, juicy pine steak. Everybody likes a well-dressed man and a well-dressed woman, everybody likes a great time and everybody likes a big brown trout. And it's just like, and because we've all said, well, I never got a brown trout over 16 inches or 17 inches or 18 inches, um, 
that's, they are the elusive ones. Or I had one, but it broke me off. Or I had one, but it went under the lock. Or I had, you know, this is why we love these fish, because they are the most elusive, the most adaptive. They go in places from sore pipes to um, sewer discharges to the most pristine waters in the world. Um, they can adapt. They can tolerate temperatures up to 74, 75 degrees. They go places where brown trout don't go. They are like the the shark of the, of the trout world. It's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And like you just said, big wide range of water temperatures. That's, I've definitely noticed that. Um, where and when do they spawn? So that's very interesting. So they're primary fall spawners, as we all know. So usually northern hemisphere, it starts as early as September, October, um, goes into, you know, November, December, January. I have them spawning. I have sea forelin, which are brown trout that were evolved in, in the Bavaria that we plant here in the Great Lakes. In the Great Lakes, they evolve, they spawn as late as February. So their spawning is relatively temperate to the environment. So in South America, because the seasons change, because their, their summers are winters, winters are summers, they spawn in all those things. So it's relative, but they are usually on declining uh, sunlight. When sunlight starts to decline, that's when they spawn. That's usually the indicator for them to get their hormones going uh, through their pineal gland of their head to say it's time to spawn. So it's declining light, which is usually fall and winter. Now, when the browns, uh, when do they de- the males develop these big kites they get? Is that on their first spawn? Yeah, it's usually uh, on the first spawn, um, and it's usually it's something that's sort of geared towards the spawning ritual because that kite, whether it's Atlantic salmon or brown trout, that's their like antlers on a moose or or an elk. That's their their combative nature to get alpha dominant. So usually, that kite usually comes out on their first spawn and sort of stays with them in a subliminal way and it gets more pronounced towards the spawning phase when they get more sexually mature. So it does, does it actually draw back when they're not spawning? I mean, does it recede or does it... It, it, it recedes, yeah. It recedes a little bit, and it's sort of, the, you know, it's, it's in full-blown nature when the hormones are going at massive, at massive yeah. pace. But, um, you know, you see a lot of small-faced fish, and people say, oh, that's a hen or a female, but it turns out that's a male brown shot, and you'll see it more pronounced as it continues yeah. to grow. How old do they have to be to spawn? When are they sexually mature? Uh, you know, there's, there's brown trout in the Smoky Mountains and in, in parts of Europe in the generic Alps that are seven, eight inches long that are perfectly sexually mature. Uh, it all depends on habitat. It all depends on the water quality. It all depends on their growth rates. Um, that dictates when they're going to be sexually mature. If the creek is six inches deep and less than a foot, and the fish could only hold their their maximum capacity for growth in those waters, they could be seven, eight inches and be fully spawning mature adults like a 25-incher. So it's really unique. It's all based on habitat as the template that forms their life, you know, whether they're midgets or they're giants, and it all depends on yeah. habitat. Yeah, it's kind of like what I, I heard at times that, you know, if you put a uh, certain kind of fish in an aquarium, they will only grow so large because of the, the habitat. And even if exactly. you're feeding they, them well. They, they, 
Right. Pardon? Exactly. Adjustability. Adjustability. You have to remember that brown trout are adaptable, the most adaptable creatures on planet. They could survive. They could live in a toilet bowl in Florida, or they could live in the most pristine waters in northern Canada. And it's just that's what they are. They are truly civilization-founding fish. How long do they normally live, and, and how often would they spawn in, a, in their lifetime? How many times? Uh, so that's, again, a question that's based on their habitat. So they could spawn as many times as they're alive. They don't die after spawning. Um, they could live to be 14, 15, 16, 18, 20 years old. Um, oh, really? That old? You know, they're very old fish, yeah. And uh, um, it all depends on... Uh, a lot of factors. Growth rates, sometimes they could forego a year of spawning. And if you look at Salmo, they have to migrate between Greenland and northern Canada and Greenland and uh, the UK and the Faroe Islands and Russia. They have to swim a lot. So they might have to they go forego years of spawning just to get to their feeding grounds, put weight back on, to come back to the rivers and spawn and then go at ice out back into the ocean or in the river system. So it all depends. Their adaptability is the key quotient that makes them, whether they spawn this year or they forgo a year or conditions weren't right for them, um, they have that ability because they're not like Pacific salmon that die once they become sexually mature. Right, right. And um, one question I have for you is they seem to be able to spawn in creeks or tributary or creeks running into lakes. In other words, some browns are live in lakes the, during the summer and then go into the creeks to spawn, right? But exactly. It also, but also it seems like um, this uh, little lake that we have that I was talking about, this private lake, at some point in time browns were stocked in this lake, okay? It has mm -hmm. to have been at least 20 years ago. Because right. nobody stocked it with browns since then. There's still browns in that lake. <laughs> so yeah. the, the question is, are those, the, the ones we do catch, and they're fewer and far between between the, you know, the rainbows, but um, do you think they are um, uh, spawning and reproducing in that lake? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, when I, if you read the Nexus, and you're going to see all the scientific studies on uh, done by uh, Bjorn Janssen in his book, uh, which collaborated with a lot of biologists throughout the world. A brown trout is as adaptable as anything, and he, will, he or she will find a place to spawn in lake systems. So a lot of these large alpine lakes and a lot of these like Caspian Sea lakes, they will find gravel shoals in those lakes that have enough current coming through them by deflection of the way the, the way the lake performs, and they will actually spawn in those gravel areas in the lake. That's not their preference. Their preference is definitely to run a river like a salmon, like an Atlantic salmon or a sea-run brown or most browns run river. But if, given the chance of survival or non-survival, they will find places that have gravel that has enough current to keep the eyed-up embryos in that gravel um, oxygen-rich and, and hatch from those areas. So we have a lake up here uh, with the world record came out of Torch Lake, which actually has spawning in these gravel shoals of these, you know, they get up to 29 pounds. The largest brown shot caught out of, of Torch Lake was 29 pounds. 
And they spawn in a lot of these places. Some of them run the rivers. Uh, they like running the rivers because you're always usually guaranteed a very fertile gravel. But, um, like I said, the most adaptable creature on the yeah. planet. This thing will find yeah. a place to spawn. So it's very interesting. So that lake, they're finding places to go there and spawn and, um, you know, replicate their genetics, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Because the only, you know, the, the water coming into the lake, uh, they can't run up. It's a diversion ditch off the, the main stream that's going through the valley. And uh, right. so so there's no stream river to run up, so they've got to be doing it somewhere in the lake. And it was just always curious to me. Um, exactly. But, uh, now, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's some myths out there kind of uh, that I, I want to have you address. Um, you know, that I'll just throw these out there. You tell me if it's a myth or it's true and... And we'll go from there. Uh, that brown trout stay deep and feed on the bottom and never feed on the surface. That's ridiculous. So brown trout are one of the most characteristic traits of Salmo, brown trout, and Atlantic salmon is they like to look up. So brown trout are some of the best dry fly fish on the planet, and so are Atlantic salmon. And brown trout like warmer water than rainbows? Uh, not necessarily like, but they could tolerate it. So if they have their pick, I'm sure they'd like the most, being the most adaptable. And you picture, you know, you look at a brown trout like that guy that sits on the couch and eats pizza and burgers and watches TV um, and doesn't move around a lot. If you can have comfort zone 24-7, that's what they like. But if you throw them out in the yard and make them shovel some snow and go put them in a gym, he'll do it if he has to. But the beauty of the the beauty of the evolution is um, is that they've always found the most comfortable way to exist, but they've uh, sustained hardship beyond comprehension because they are the ultimate survival. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So so many rivers here in the West, at least, you know, tailwaters. Talking tailwaters. Right. You'll usually find uh, it seems that the rainbows are generally congregating more up towards the, you know, the dams and the colder sure. water. And then as you further go downstream, you'll start picking up more browns. Um, exactly. So, that's so they love marginal water. Brown trout are lovers of marginal trout streams. If you want to catch a big brown trout, you find marginal trout water. That means the lower sections of the rivers where they're warmer, where the warmer temperatures are, what warmer temperatures translate into is ultra-nutrient-rich waters, okay? Uh -huh. So nutrients spawn bait fish, spawn more insects, blah, 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 blah. Water temperatures might be higher, but a brown trout's going to pick that area because he's going to have more food, he's going to dominate, and brook trout and rainbow trout are always going to find more quicker, faster water, more higher oxygen content, where brown trout could tolerate lower con oxygen contents. That's why... They are niche survivors. They are the ultimate niche adapters, and that's what brown trout are all about. And they don't like light. So usually cloudier, more murkier, lower water that has less current is usually more conducive to them, to their photophobic tendencies. It's totally different from everything that a rainbow does or a brook trout. Yeah, I mean, that was the... That was the next uh, statement. Brown trout have sensitive eyes, like dark lies, and night feeding. Exactly. Like, so, true. so why yeah. they like the night feeding is the fact that 
They have neural maps in their skin and their lateral line that pick up the slightest vibrations. So I posted on my Facebook page today a picture of a brown trout that was caught in Wales in, in, in the UK with a chickling, uh, I don't know what kind of bird it was, uh, baby seal or something in its throat and its body. Um, it, it, these things can hunt based like a shark. If you think of a brown trout as a shark or a moray eel, that's the way they hunt, and they don't like light, and they can do it in the darkest, darkest conditions. Where rainbow trout evolved very recently, 1.5 million years ago, I call it recently, but they did, and they basically evolved in the Rocky Mountains. They are the trout of the Rockies. They are trout of the West Coast. They're beautiful characters. I absolutely love rainbows to death. But they evolved in conditions that were totally different from brown trout. They evolved in right. sunny conditions. Brown trout evolved in cold, rainy, nasty northern Atlantic or North Sea conditions and in black forests and two different beasts. And um, right. Right. it's interesting how they pick the niches. So the, the old adage is uh, brown trout can't survive with a brook trout, a brook trout can't survive with a rainbow trout is a bunch of bunk because they all pick out different life survival strategies in that river system that allows them to survive, and they really can care less about each other, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, how about this one? Brown trout are more selective than rainbows. Uh, that's not true. I fished for rainbows on the Henry's Fork uh, in Idaho. That just slipped me the bird all day long. I fished for <laughs> rainbows on the... I fished for the main, on the main Delaware, which has the first plantings in 1800s of Calicoon rainbows that are just, just next to impossible to catch. Um, <laughs> I fished for rainbows on the Muskegon River in August when the caddis are hatching, and I swear to God, they're almost impossible to catch. Um, so that has nothing to do with it. Actually, sometimes browns are so aggressive that they'll eat the first worm that comes down the pike. But, um, yeah. no, I, I, and I've caught brook trout on big springs in Pennsylvania that are, like, the most selective. They're down to size 32 midges, and if your midge was a 28, it didn't accept it. So uh, everything's a function of habitat. But rainbows, as generally, are just like a dumb rubber trout because of the way we, we reproduce them in hatcheries. We do that type of thing. Yeah. Um, but brown trout uh, can be almost mind-bogglingly selective, and so could rainbows. And it yeah. all depends on how many times they've been caught, how many flies they were shown to, how many catch-and-release waters they are. And you just go to go to the Henry's Fork and their Harriman Ranch and try to – you're going to get your butt kicked some days on those rainbows. Those yeah. are impossible. The rainbows on Dupuis Spring Creek. Uh, there's nothing to do with, with their, their species. It has to do with the environments that they're in. All trout are selective if you give them a chance. And like you say, where they came from, if they just came out of the hatchery, that's a whole different fish. Exactly. And, and, and the uh, rabbit of the hatcheries is a rainbow trout because they're cheaper, they're easier to raise, they're, and, and they're beautiful fish. I mean, come on, a beautiful rainbow trout is gorgeous. You can't beat it. You know, yeah. it's, it's stunning fish. Well, let's talk about uh, feeding styles of, of the browns. Um, you had mentioned in your book, Sit, wait, roam, pick, eat, hide. Uh, can you talk about those? Yeah. So you know, basically, what it comes down to is uh, they're they're labeled by Dr. Bjorn Janssen as sit and wait predators. So 
they like to hide under a bush. They like to hide underneath an undercut bank or a bridge abutment um, and wait for things to come to them. They're kind of lazy creatures. Um, rainbows and brook trout will jump around a lot. They're like that little dog that just jumps up and down on the couch back and forth. A brown trout likes to sit on that couch and just nap a piece of bone when he can. Um, so they just sit and wait for They want something to happen to them. They want the easiest piece of food in the most laziest way. And then you have a, a different personality called a hide, stalk, and strike. So these guys, like, sort of like more eels, will be underneath an undercut bait, wait for that sculpin or that stupid rainbow trout that was just stalked by the fish commission to come by and whack it and take it back underneath his little hide and chow on it. So that's the hide, stalk, and strike. So um, between those two, one is a very lazy way of feeding. One is a very aggressive way of feeding. But they always pick uh, intersection fulcrums where they know that something's going to happen in that area and they hide under a rock, hide behind a tree jam or a log jam and wait for something to come in their way and they strike like an eel, like a moray eel. They look a lot like a moray eel. If you look at the, the kite on a moray eel and the kite on a big brown, they're almost identical. It's, it's to devour something. And that's yeah. why they'll eat ducklings, they'll eat chicklings, they'll eat anything like that. It's kind of cool. They're, they're vicious fish. It's kind of, yeah. it's a very interesting what, fish. How do they uh, act in, in a lake situation? Um, are they hiding in the weeds, uh, you know, behind a rock somewhere? Do they act more like a pike in, in a lake? Um, or do they cruise yeah, like the rainbows? No, they're, they're exactly like that. They're like pike. They're like musky. They're, they're the equivalent of the trout equivalent of pike and musky. They find their realized niches. It's called a realized niche where it's their home. It's their condo. It's where they have their security. And they're going to stalk. They're going to base their security out of that undercut bank, that, 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 that tree stump, um, that rock. And they'll venture out and forage. Uh, especially in lake situations, because in lake situations, they can't be sit-and-wait predators. A sit-and-wait predator has to have a, a phone line or a current coming and delivering food to it. Uh, in the lake systems, they're like garbage feeders. They, they're the predators sort of like muskie and pike. They have to attack their prey. They have to calculate their prey. Um, they're... they're um, they're kill artists. Like my, my mentor, Vince Marinero, uh, that I got to fish with in Pennsylvania on the Latour, called them a kill artist supreme, man. They're killer, killer artists. And they, they yeah. will design how they're going to attack that bluegill or they're going to attack that little bass or they're going to attack that little trout. And, um, it's a shark for the practical bird. Most people that fish for brown trout with big streamers, all of a sudden gotten into muskie hunting, man. Muskie's the gig today, Esocks. Everybody's fishing Esocks because they like that big strike, that savage strike. A brown trout will take a 14-inch long double deceiver or a drunken disorderly by Tommy Lynch or, um, you know, these, these game changers because they're, they're just beasts. They're, they're true to sources, as I call them. Kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you had just mentioned Vince uh, Marinaro. Um, one thing I noted in your book is that um, I think many of us take the flies and methods we use today for granted, but there's been a lot of hard work, a lot of intensive research 
that was done to get uh, to, to where we are today and what we use. Can you talk about some of the contributions that, like, for instance, Skews and Marinero and Charlie Fox, Ed Shank, Ed Cock, some of the major contributions they made that, that didn't exist uh, not too long ago uh, that we use every day? Yeah, so uh, that's that's it's an amazing legacy, and it's still going on today. There's people today, like all of us, that are inventing new stuff. But you know, when SKUs came along, nymphing was was bastardized. I mean, you you if you were a nympher on the past in the itch and in the hollow waters, you were like a scumbag. I mean, if you weren't dry fly fishing with the purest flies, SKUs basically said, you know, I I'd like to catch fish on a dry fly. I like to catch fish, but you know, like they say, ninety percent of the trout's diet's made up of Subwater, in my book I call it meniscus. So what's really interesting, I broke down my book into meniscus, midstrata, and benthos. So I don't call it dry fly, I don't call it wet fly, and I don't call it nymphing. I broke it up by the strata that the trout feed it. So Skews is very concerned about nymphing being benthos and midstrata because he used to swing his nymphs, uh, his blowing all the nymphs through the surface. So did Sawyer. Uh, when Marinero and Fox came along, they were in the ultimate golden age of terrestrials, the, the Japanese beetle invasion of the Cumberland Valley. Uh, they invented flies that jacids and ants and beetles and hoppers and very cool mayfly thoraxes that didn't sort of exist. So they did the next generation. I always look at Gordon and Hewitt of the Catskills being the first American generation, the second generation, excuse me, Preston Jennings and LaBranche also. But Marinero and Fox did the terrestrial gig that we love today, and then Shank was, Ed Shank was the, was the badass dude that just, he caught fish. I mean, this guy could catch fish on sculpin. <laughs> he was a sculpin guy. He was a Latour Tapper guy. He was a cricket guy. He was everything. And then, uh, then Ed Koch got into the, the midge world and took midges to a new height, but, Everybody had their contribution, which makes this sport so wonderful. What really disturbs me today is we become a mechanical, textbook style of fishing. We fail to acknowledge the incredible people that came before us and their contributions. And today, everybody's a rock star, and you're not a rock star because nobody even knows who these people are. So my goal with my book was to establish the fact that before you thought you were cool fishing, there were people before you that made you look non-cool. Yeah. End of yeah. yeah, I think uh I think it was in you you told the story. I think it was Ed Shank and Ed Cock working Cock working together. Or maybe it was Marinero and Fox. I don't know, but one was, was upstream. Fox on a hopper. Yep. It was Marinero and yeah. Fox. Yep. One was scouting and watching the fish and the other's fishing and <laughs> I mean exactly. you know, the intensity of, of trying to figure that fish out I thought was incredible. Um yeah, yeah, that's uh, what it's all about. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, quickly, on, and all of these could be a show in itself, but I wanted to, you had pointed out a few pros and cons about some of the types of fishing we do, like drift boat fishing, um, especially for brown trout. Um, tell us some of the pros and cons of fishing from a boat. Yeah, so specifically the, 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 the biggest pro is that it gives you access to a lot of different water, and... Um, you know, to have a drift boat, um, you need to get out there and row, and you need to cover a lot of water. And um, the biggest problem also is that you pick up your anchor right away, and you have to go somewhere. So 
A, a boat is great because it allows you access to a lot of water, but at the same time, it makes you jump around too much. And some of the wading anglers usually do better because they have one spot to focus on and focus on that area and focus on the rising fish. Uh, one of the other good things about a drift boat is usually when you drop your anchor and you fish through a bunch of fish that are rising or whatever, you create a bubble line by the reflections of the boat with the current hydrodynamics acting with the boat. So a drift boat is a blessing and it's a curse at the same time. The key to being successful is don't move around too much. Scope out an area very carefully. Watch for rising trout or watch for conditions or whatever's going to happen. And use your boat slowly. Don't go crazy with it, especially if you've got a motor, you're, you're, you get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, use it more for transportation. I guess the one time I could see it as an advantage is if you're slamming the shoreline with, with big streamers or something looking for those those browns under the banks or something like that. Exactly, exactly. So if you're streamer fishing and streamer robbing and bank robbing and, and all that great stuff, yeah, you got to keep moving and you keep covering water and you're constantly, because you're looking for an aggressive predator, it's all over the place. If you're dry fly fishing, it's more better to stay yeah. a little slower. Yeah. If you're nymphing and you're looking for fish bulging and runs and stuff like that, it's better to stay slower. Uh, but if you're if you're bank robbing and you're you're tossing big chickens and big uglies and big meat at the yeah. fish, it stays. It, but but also don't don't fish too quickly. So uh, when I, I do a lot of streamer fishing, um, I usually find out that the boat behind me or the third boat and back of me, the cleanup boats usually do better because your first cast to the shoreline usually stirs the fish up and the guy coming back later tends to get the fish. So um, we tend to fish a little too quickly when we're streamer fishing um, because the brown trout is more of a lethargic character that will chase the streamer several times uh, to the boat and then decide to make up its mind to, to kill something. So I often yeah. see guys fishing streamers and they're fishing way too fast. They're fishing way too quickly, and their their mentality is, "Oh, I got to find, I got to find the, I got to find the killer, the the alpha fish, the guy." Yeah, but brown trout are not always the alpha killer. They're always like, "I'm going to wait till I son of a bitch is dead, and then I'm going to kill it." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you got to yeah. go a little slower. Okay, great. Yeah. What are your pros and cons on the the euro or tight line nymphing? Uh, I think it's the more it's extremely extremely effective method. Uh, what the Euro nymphing does, and uh, I, I have a whole section in my book about Euro nymphing, and actually I saw the first Euro nymphing when I was in Poland in 1980 when they were fishing, you know, beech tree saplings with German monofilament tied to Polish woven hooks that were women's clothing on a hook because it was a communist country and they didn't couldn't afford fly rods and fly reels. It was basically ten kara fishing. Um, so I, in my, I think it's chapter six or seven, I talk about that whole thing. But, you know, uh, I mean, the, 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 the fly fishing world teams, you know, and, and uh, George Daniels wrote a great book, Dynamic Nymphing, and uh, so many good books like Jason Randall's. Nymphing and nymphing is awesome. It's a fish-catching machine, but at the same time, it could be a detriment because brown trout figure out, um, brown trout figure out a system very quickly. And, and euro-nymphing is basically pulverizing carpet crawling, bombing a certain area with three nymphs or two nymphs to the point of saturation. Eventually, one of those fish are going to get hooked by those nymphs. Um, 
Ground chart, I've seen ground chart literally move two feet to the left or two feet to the right of its constant Euro-nymphing bomber because they figure it out very quickly. So there's a very positive, it's a very dynamic way to catch fish. Um, it catches fish, but to very selective brown trout, it could be a big turnoff. Yeah, I think in your book you mentioned that uh, you know, if you're looking to catch a lot of fish, that that method works very well. Uh, if you're looking to catch big fish, not so much. Was I correct in my exactly, exactly. memory? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, those big guys aren't going to be laying down there with where, where all these others are, are hanging out. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, Phil McCartney uh, in Kentucky asked, um, he says, in waters that you fish uh, most for trout, what, what are the biggest issues that you have uh, that you have in trying to correct in order to help others catch fish? So what, what's the biggest issues that people, you know, mistakes they make or do or don't do that when you're guiding that you see? Um, so, biggest issues, uh, to help others catch fish. So, number one, people just need to chill out, okay? So, I think a lot of times you get on the river, um, and, um, people just have to start casting, they have to start going crazy, they're, they're, they're in the process of doing a sport. And, fish don't always, uh, cooperate with your time frame, um, Observation is, is a very key element in trout fishing. Hunting, stalking fish uh, is very important. Um, when I'm instructing people, we get to a new spot on the river, I'm in my drift boat or jet sled or whatever, and I'm like, let's sit here and wait for a while and see what happens. We have to study nature more, pay attention to hatches, pay attention to the rise forms, how fish feed, um, all that great stuff, and I think everybody just needs to slow down a little bit. That's the key. Be a, be a stalker like a heron and just spend more time observing, and when you make your casts, execute them properly, and you're going to catch more and bigger fish. Okay, let's talk about um, Atlantic salmon. We don't have a lot of time left, but uh, let's use the last few minutes for that. Uh, one of the things you, and you had uh, some pictures of this in your book, that the, the juveniles of, of both the Atlantic salmon and the, and the brown trout look very much the same. Um, uh, you want to talk to that? And, you know, you yeah, so they're, they're cousins, basically right? the same fish. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're literally the same fish. So I have pictures of baby, uh, you know, you par juvenile Atlantic salmon, juvenile browns. They are the Atlantic trouts, as Bjorn Janssen, Dr. Bjorn Janssen describes them. Uh, a, ba uh, a juvenile par Atlantic and a juvenile par brown are very almost impossible to disseminate at times when you look at them, and I have pictures of them in the book. Uh, their genetics, Salmo Solar, Salmo Truda, are so close that there's one or two alleles, one or two genetic uh, chromosomal DNA differences that separate them. But at birth and at, at juvenile state, they look alike. And then at adult spawning state, they look very similar. The only difference is that the Atlantic goes to the ocean and adapts the silver and gray backs and gets that more, you know, Atlantic-looking fish, but then so do sea-run brown trout. If you go to Tierra del Fuego or anywhere in the world, you catch a sea-run brown trout down there or in Scotland or Wales or anything, they, they look just like Atlantic salmon. So they're very, very similar. They are the same fish. That's why I call them the nexus. 
And um, and they both spawn at similar times of the year, right? I think you said uh, exactly. salmon were usually a little later than the browns, yeah. but yeah, they could be later, they could be earlier, depending on their, their conditions and the climatic okay. conditions. But they all spawn on falling sunlight that influences their pineal gland. But they're they're the same fish. I, I, I that's why I wrote the nexus. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned them uh, actually holding together with browns. Uh, in the same hole, um, but, yeah, but differently, they, right? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, the Atlantics are always in a domineering state because they're bigger fish that came out of the oceans, and the browns are always more shy and cautious because they're residents. So it's like that, you know, big visitor that just came in and he just, you know, oh, I'm going to take over this place. But um, Atlantics like faster water. They could tolerate sunlight much better uh, than browns do because they, they hunt on the top of the pelagic zone in the oceans. Um, so, Atlantic could tolerate sunlight. Browns don't like sunlight as a whole. They'll, they'll be always looking for those dim areas. Um, but they're pretty much the same fish. Yeah, and uh, Dino from Michigan wrote in. He says, uh, since brown trout uh, spawn with brook trout, why don't we see more hybridization? Um, and he's talking, I think, between brown trout and, and salmon. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, he's talking about brown trout and brook trout, so the hybridization. Uh, well, I think he, he was talking, though, he, he wrote it uh, when I saw it in context. It was about um, Atlantic salmon. In other words, okay, why don't we so see more we yeah. yeah, we don't see a lot of hybridization between brown trout and Atlantic salmon based on the fact that they have an allele difference. They have a genetic chromosomal difference that they could, they're, Youth, their finger, um, the sac pride could survive, and usually by the time they're in the par stage, they get to be deformed, and the deformities uh. usually come out in that par stage. What's really interesting on the Salmon River in New York is that they're finding hybridization between brown trout and Atlantic salmon surviving past that par stage, past into like semi-adult states. And that happens around the world. I don't think there's a ton, ton of biological data on there. There's a little bit, but there's enough genetic diversity in the two that doesn't allow them to carry on further and actually reproduce and have hybrids. But there's cases of it. There's very limited yeah. cases. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing is, I guess it's, it's common knowledge that once the, the salmon start up, into the spawning mode up to the river, they stop feeding. And this has always been a, a contention of, well, how do you get a fish to eat if, if they're not feeding? Do they, is the event of entering the, the, the river the point that where they stop feeding, or do they stop feeding before they enter the river? Or what? In other words, is there, I guess what I'm getting at is there, is there more of an opportunity to catch an Atlantic salmon when they're first entering the, the river than, you know, three weeks later? Exactly. So in my selectivity book in, on Atlantic salmon, I talk about the, you know, the id, superego, and ego state of the fish when they come into the river system. They're still on ocean pelagic hunting, uh, drive, so they're more apt to take a fly because just, you know, weeks earlier or months earlier, they're still chasing, you know, sardines in the ocean, herring, capelin, etc. Once they become into the river system, they start to act like brown trout. They start to get you know, they start to get interested in flies, but that interest is usually born out of two things. It's born out of natal imprinting to flies. Because some Atlantic salmon will stay two, three, four, five years in the river system before they migrate. 
So they've been feeding on mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, anything that's movement, um, and they start to act like ground trout. That's the connection. So once they're in the river system, they'll take a size 16 tube fly in Iceland that's on a ripple hitch because it acts like a miniature caddis on the surface. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's all about the aggression that turns into introspection and selectiveness, and that's how they feed. And it's mainly natal imprinting to food forms in the river systems that they feed once they're in the river system. Yeah, you had mentioned uh, and kind of detailed out Hugh Falkus, uh, his what he determined were the six responses for the salmon to a fly. Um, but you also wrote that that's been somewhat contested as to whether he's covered the ground properly there. Uh, but yeah. uh, go ahead and talk about uh, those methods. Yeah, so, you know, there's so many theories about it. I mean, we could sit here for hours. We don't have much time right now. But the basic instinct is that this fish, the fresh run fish, usually the first chrome, silver, sea life, sea life dripping fish, is the most aggressive because it's based on the fact that it still was in an ocean form or is in a predatory phase. The moment it enters the system, it has to go from salt water to fresh water and adapt in the renal system. Renal system usually has a downer effect on any ingestion of food. So Lee Wolf says there's no way in hell. Why does a, you know, why does a landing salmon take a dry fly? Why does a kid cross the road to kid can? Because it can't. Because it's still having these natal imprints. I'm a firm believer that you go from one phase of the life survival strategy is eating as much as you can in the ocean and coming into the river and not eating as much as you can and preserve your energy for survival of the fittest, which is uh, procreation. So when you're in the river and you see, all of a sudden you see a white fly hatch on, on the, uh, the church pool, uh, on the York River, um, White House pool, and you start, all of a sudden you take a size 12 white mother minnow, is because something reminds you of the past. They are amazing in the fact that they, their natal imprinting to food forms transcends into aggression based on territorial dominance. Um, so you, if you go to like the White House uh, pool on, on the York River, you got uh, five, six hundred Atlantic salmon in that pool between 10 and 40 pounds. And then I'll, I talk about it in selectivity, I talk about it in nexus. You see a white fly ephron hatch, and all of a sudden the fish start going crazy because the fish's mentality is aggression, alpha dominance, which translates into spawning. So if I see a white fly and they start moving around, maybe snap at it because I don't want Joe Blow down two, two pecking orders from me to go up and get it. So this is the way you have to think, almost like in human terms, that will translate into Atlantic salmon terms. And it's... Uh, very unique uh, combination there. Got to read the book. Yeah. The um, the other thing that I always found interesting was the flies that have developed for Atlantic salmon. Fancy, complex, um, definitely not representing particularly any kind of natural uh, insect or animal many times. Uh, and one thing you highlighted in your book is, you know, the, the black, orange, red components, uh, that those are the most important colors in these flies. Um, is the design of those flies just, uh, can I make a fly that will ag aggravate the fish more than another fly? I mean, is that how those were developed? As well as a little ego involved in, 
<laughs> yeah, the beauty of so it. Uh, yeah, so a lot of lot of ego, a lot of show, a lot of uh, artistry uh, is all involved in Atlantic salmon flies, but very little catching. So uh, once a, once <laughs> Scottish Gilly once told me when I was a kid that uh, any fly will catch an Atlantic salmon as long as it's black. Okay, um, so. Basically, you know, when I talk about the Chapter 10 and I talk about Jock Scott and the fly embodied all the black, so there's several, it's all about optics, and it's all about UV and how UV represents optics. So Atlantic salmon have two phases of their life. The phase is the pelagic hunting phase, which, which gears their eyes towards the blue-green phase. So if you see a lot of flies, blue charms, and the pompier, and a lot of flies, the green highlander, is based off that blue-green phase where their eyes are detailed into that pelagic zone where blue-green light is most effective. Once they're in the river systems, the light changes, the light darkens, and the orange and the black and the dull colors tend to influence that. Um, a lot of Atlantic sandflies, are, there's two, two phases. Ones that catch fish of the Atlantic sandflies and ones that are artistry and show and tell and beautiful exotic centers that Marco Polo brought to the new world. Um, this is what the beauty of Atlantic salmon, but if you could guarantee if you're going to catch a fish on a fly. So I go into the next phase, which is my nexus phase of roadkill. So when we were up in the gas bay of Quebec and, and nobody was catching fish, we were tying funky steelhead, big black marabou, junky looking flies that you would throw out if you had them in your fly box. And we were starting to throw big streamers for Atlantic salmon that, that would break the hulls of the kings and queens that ever fish for Atlantic salmon, and we started catching fish. And in nexus and selectivity, I talk about roadkill. And roadkill is now the rage. I go all over the world now fishing for Atlantic, and all the guys are into roadkill because they're brown trout. Brown trout are Atlantic salmon. Atlantic salmon, they're aggressive bastards just like brown trout are, and they want something they can't have. And if you're throwing a, a blue charm at them every day, and then all of a sudden you come up with some funky black leech woolly bugger. I talked to a guy that caught a 44-pound salmon on Charlie Rock Pool. That was the editor of Five Broad Reel Magazine. He had his first trip to the gas bay. I said, what you get the 45-pound fish out of here? He says, oh, a black woolly bugger. And I said, you should be stricken, you should be stricken down by the gods of a salmon for throwing yeah. a woolly bugger at such a hollowed fish, right? So it sounds like uh, changing up is uh, definitely has to be part of the plan um, and uh, thinking out of the box many times. Exactly, uh, exactly. You summed it right up there. Uh, Dino in Michigan wrote in. He says, Lake Huron harbors were full of Atlantic uh, salmon last fall, but getting them to bite was a challenge. Both of these species, I think he's referring to browns and Atlantics, uh, seem to stop feeding when approaching spawning. This was not the case years ago. Brown trout would bite well uh, when presented baits. Are there different strains of these fish that are, behave differently? I think you probably yeah, already so, answered this question. Huh? <laughs> but, yeah, uh, so, you know, what's interesting is that most guys don't know how to fish for, uh, most guys and gals don't understand the, the nature of the take of, of landlocked Atlantic sim. So I, I know those fish. I guide for those fish. I know those lakes here on fish. Most people fish for... Atlantic salmon like steelhead. They want to shove something in their mouth. A landlocked Atlantic salmon, Atlantic salmon, uh, both of them don't want something shoved in their mouth. They want something coming away from them. So I would see these fish chase 
something 10, 15, 20 feet, and they come out of nowhere to strike your fly, whereas a steelhead wants something shoved in its face. And I think when these fish were introduced in Lake Huron, 90% of the guys that were fishing in the fall for landlocked Atlantic salmon were fishing steelhead methods, and they weren't, you know, unless you fished Atlantics around the world, you didn't understand the way they want things. They want something they can have, and they will strike something when you least expect it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dino also wrote in, uh, and these are all things that you've been talking about, but I, I like to honor his question here. Um, when fly fishing browns seem, uh, they seem to like the largest fly that one can throw on my best success with Atlantics in St. Mary's River has come on smaller flies. They ignore big flies. Is this typical of the species? Uh, yes and no. That's very interesting, but yeah. So it's very interesting. You could probably I, reverse I, that question and be true too, right? I mean. Exactly. That's exactly. So <laughs> I know the St. Mary's very well because I, I guided there many, many years. What's really unique? So what's, you gotta separate landlocks. So this weekend, next weekend when I'm doing my range relates things, it's about landlocked Atlantic salmon. These are freshwater to freshwater fish. They are potamantras versus anadromous fish. They can retain the urge to eat a lot longer than saltwater to freshwater fish. So uh, basically what he's talking about is, yeah, in the St. Mary's, what's very unique, and I talk about it a lot in Chapter 11 of Nexus, is that They've adapted to feeding on caddis pupa, midge larva, midge pupa, which is absolutely unheard of. I caught fish up to 15 pounds in the St. Mary's River on size 14 caddis pupa, and they were feeding just like brown trout and really tiny stuff. So brown Atlantic salmon could take the smallest size 12, 14 blue charm uh, riffle hitch tube fly, and at the same time they'll strike a giant roadkill at the, at the same time. This is the same yeah. mentality. This is the nexus. This is the Salmo connection that my book talks about. Go figure. Huh? Go Go figure. figure. <laughs> uh, one last question here, and then we'll call it quits. Uh, Phil wrote in on the Internet here. Uh, he says, where in the U.S. would you recommend uh, someone to try to catch Atlantic salmon on the fly? And why don't you, why don't you give two answers? One is the landlocked, and one is uh, the... You know, the, the sea run, Atlantic salmon. So in, in the U.S., um, landlocks, uh, I would say Michigan, we have the strongest program right now in our inland lakes, Torch Lake and Elk Lake and those lakes, and then, of course, Lake Huron and the St. Mary's River. Michigan is making the biggest strides uh, to, to propagate Atlantic salmon in a big way, landlocked Atlantic salmon. Uh, sea run fish. It's definitely Maine. I mean, you have your rivers in Maine that still have, you know, minimal runs. There's, you know, they're minimal, two, three thousand fish. Uh, but you still have rivers up there that have the indigenous, you know, Atlantic salmon runs. And some years they have good years. The Penobscot, some of those years, they have great years. Some have less. Um, uh, but if you, Maine is, in my opinion, I'm going to be there in two weeks and I love Maine. Maine is like unbelievable. It's the Alaska of the lower 48. It's the final frontier, and Maine is still got runs of Atlantic salmon. And there's the Salmon River in New York, and then there's the Port Credit River, the Credit River in, in Ontario. There's actually natural reproduction of Atlantics documented in Credit River outside of Toronto. So 
you know, there's, we're, we're making a very hard attempt to bring them back, so it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, would you say uh, if you just cross the border out of Maine and go into Canada that you're going to have better Atlantic salmon fishing? Oh, of course, because as soon as you cross into, into New Brunswick, you have the Miramichi, which is a hollowed river, and then, of course, Quebec and the Matapedia and the Cascapedia and the York and Dartmouth. Oh, there's no question about it. But you okay. can still catch an Atlantic fish in Maine, which is great. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Well, we're out of time. Got to wrap things up. We ran over, uh, but uh, we had to take a quick break while you reconnected, so that's why I went on a little bit longer here. Wonderful. I'm uh, losing my voice now. I got bad out yeah. of here, so I can't talk anymore. Yeah, well, we, we got you now, so you're all good. Um, but uh, hang with me for just a couple more minutes, and we'll finish up the show. Um, we're going to give away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, as well as a copy of your book, uh, Matt, The Brown Trout, Atlantic Salmon Nexus, courtesy of Skyhorse Publishing, uh, which you can find at skyhorsepublishing.com. So thank you, Skyhorse, for providing uh, this, this uh, prize for tonight. So, um, so stick with me, and we'll, uh, we'll give away those prizes in just a few seconds. Sounds Family good. Ties, that T-Y-E-S, Family Ties is an organization which uses a shared interest in fly fishing and fly tying to enhance youth development and family relationships. It utilizes resources in schools, communities, and businesses, and they invite your participation. Go to their website, familyties.com. That's family and then T-Y-E-S dot com. We're family ties where every fish is a trophy and every kid is a hero. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute to leave us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away the prizes. The drawings are, uh, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't want to miss out on that incredible prizes we have to offer. And if you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So, uh, so first, we'll give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about the FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be part of, so uh, check them out. And our winner for that is Mike Dodge. Mike Dodge is from Colorado. And, uh, Mike, you're now going to become a member of Fly Fishers International, so congratulations. And now we'll give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Uh, check them out at amatobooks.com. They've got lots of periodicals, lots of books on fly fishing. And so uh, uh, go there, and thanks to Amato for offering up this subscription. And the winner for this is Mike Sousa in New Hampshire. So Mike Sousa, congratulations on winning the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Um, and now we'll give away Matt's book, The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus from Skyhorse Publishing. And um, here you'll need to answer the question I'm going to ask. Go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and uh, fill out that form on the homepage with your answer. And um, let me clear my queue here. Uh, and uh, so the question is, what is the one thing that has allowed the brown trout to 
live in so many places and to survive over so many thousands of years? What's the one factor or thing that allows them to do that? I hope that question's not too obscure, but we'll see here <laughs> if, uh, if uh, we get an answer. So we've got a slight delay, uh, Matt, so I'm just uh, refreshing the queue looking for an answer here, and we'll We'll see if we don't get one here shortly. And, and we got uh, we got an answer from Phil McCartney, adaptable. That's right, adaptability. That's what I was looking for. So uh, thank you, Phil. And um, We'll have uh, Skyhorse send you out. Uh, send me your address again, Phil. I know you've won many times, but I don't save that information. So send me your address, uh, and I've got your email address here, and we'll get uh, Skyhorse to send that out to you. So like uh, Matt said, it's a quick read. It'll only take you <laughs> hours and hours and hours to read. <laughs> but uh, Only 188,000 words, but that's okay. Yeah, 188,000 words. I was thinking about that when I finished. I said, wow, this took a long time to read. And then I thought, God, but it took Matt a really long time to write it. Because <laughs> I know how writing goes, you know. So uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Good, your work good is, job, Phil. That was the right after adaptability. That was yeah, uh, that's yeah, the yeah. civilization in the whole is the way we adapt to all the changes that we're going to be seeing. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to talk with you again and have you share your knowledge. Uh, I surely appreciate it. I know it's getting late out there, so we'll let you go. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Awesome, Roger. Always great talking to you, and keep up the great work. Okay, thanks a lot, Matt. Our next okay. broadcast will be on July 17th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and that show will interview Kurt Flayson, uh, and uh, our topic for the show will be fighting and landing trout. Kurt is a former member of the Fly Fishing USA team and former coach of U.S. Youth Fly Fishing team, and he knows how to get fish to the net. To win competitions, this is essential. Listen and learn his techniques for fighting and landing trout that you can use to bring your hookups to the net. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.